Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, where we and our guests will discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members, like Chris and I, are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. Today, our special guest will be Dr. Robin Smith, who has forged an unusual and unusually fruitful relationship with the Vatican related to regenerative medicine and cell therapy. But before we get to our interview, Chris is going to update us with some medical news. Yeah, Tom, today's medical news comes to us from our good friends at the Centers for Disease Control, or the CDC. And earlier this summer, uh, the CDC published a report revealing a really disturbing increase in suicide rates across America. More specifically, suicide rates in America have increased steadily over the last 20 years. Rates have risen nearly 30% from 1999 to 2016. 30%? Why? Yeah, great question. And the recent headlines involving the, the deaths of uh, Anthony Bourdain, you know, the famed yes. cooking host on CNN, and, uh, and the fashion wonder Kate Spade are really part of a disturbing trend, this report points out, of suicide among middle-aged American adults. And middle-aged adults had the highest number of suicides and the largest rate of suicide increases in America, according to this CDC report. So how does the CDC define middle age? Uh, we get to that earlier. It's age 45 to 64. Oh, so that hits us, Tom. Ours truly. Yes. <laughs> uh, in the CDC report, they point out that approximately 50% of those who died by suicide had a known mental health condition. Now, obviously, the corollaries, what's interesting is the other 50%, those without a known condition, were found more likely than not to have struggled a recent significant life event, such as a personal struggle, loss of a spouse, uh, loss of a job. Now, it's impossible to know what percentage of that percentage actually had a mental health condition that just wasn't diagnosed, but they're outside the realm uh, of our knowing. So during the period 1999 to 2016, suicide rates increased significantly in 44 states. 25 of those states had increases greater than 30%. And suicide rates increased 34% among males and 43% among females. Wow. Exactly. Suicide rates have also increased among persons in all age groups less than 75 years, with our group, 45 to 64, having the largest absolute increase. And the report uh, points out, taken together, suicide and self-harm injuries cost the nation about $70 billion, that's with a B, dollars per year in indirect and direct cost. And, of course, that says nothing to try to monetize the, the loss of life and the suffering for those left behind. The research points out that in the area, uh, in, the, in the range of circumstances that have been identified as the potential risk for suicide, and these include things like, as I mentioned, relationship problems, life stressors, recent or impending crisis, and of course, substance abuse uh, and the like. The most recent overall suicide rates, that's 2014 to 2016, uh, varied from 6.9 per 100,000 in the District of Columbia, interestingly, to 29.2 deaths per 100,000 persons in Montana, of all places. Montana? I would have not thought that, would you? During the study, the suicide rates increased in all states except Nevada, interestingly. So we should move to Nevada. I'm not so sure because of the skin <laughs> cancer problem. Oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, overall, victims were predominantly male, as I mentioned, 76%, and non-Hispanic white. So, Tom, this study made me ask, how do we do in America, maybe compared to other countries? Uh, so I did some research on our friend Google <laughs> and found that uh, in the World Health Organization, as recently as 2017, there's data that looks at overall suicide rates varying widely from the highest in Sri Lanka at 34.6 deaths per 100,000 to the low in Barbados, of all places, at less than one death. So Barbados, not Nevada, is where it should move. Precisely. Thank you. For many years, Lithuania, you might not know, was known as the suicide capital of the world. Oh. And it's now ranked as number seven. So out of 183 countries ranked, the United States comes in at 47 with 12.7 deaths per 100,000. So some big takeaways for our listener. 
Suicide rates in America are on the rise, and they're rising dramatically. Celebrity suicide and all of the reporting and really the celebrity, if you will, that goes along with it, actually causes periodic increases in suicide attempts uh, and in successful suicides. We certainly see this in adolescence and post-adolescence. When there has been a suicide in a high school, it's very likely to have more than one that follow that. Suicide experts regularly talk about suicide uh, as not caused by a single factor, yet most all of the research and the prevention is oriented towards people that have mental health conditions. Now remember, in this study, 50% of people had no known health condition. So that is, these people are outside of our view or our suspicion, you might say. And those victims without a known mental health condition, they're more likely to have suffered serious relationship problems. So these events have to be thought of as risk factors for suicide, irrespective of mental health problems. And suicide, more important than anything, we have to remember, it can affect all of us, any of us, regardless of gender, of age, of race, of socioeconomic status. No one is immune. It could be your coworker, your friend, your neighbor. It could be that person sitting next to you at mass. So a simple gesture or an act of caring, it could actually be life-saving. A lifesaver. So I think we know this is an epidemic of despair, a total collapse on self, this, you know, the sin that is despair. And what's the answer? I think our listeners know that answer's got to be Christ in a relationship with him and his church through his sacraments. And so we're all ambassadors uh, for Christ. Yes. And we have to remember that those around us may be hurting. We might save a life by just reminding them that we care. You're listening to Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio. And now we are moving into Chris's health tip of the day. Well, Tom, today's health tip uh, can affect 50% of our listeners and 100% of our listeners' mothers. <laughs> How about that? I'm talking about postmenopausal bleeding. Yes. So strictly speaking, menopause is a year without menstrual bleeding. So after a woman has been without menses for 12 months, if she begins to have bleeding, that's called postmenopausal bleeding. And it's a big deal. The reason it's a big deal is it may be a sign of a much more serious underlying problem, endometrial cancer or cancer of the uterus. So 90% of women with endometrial cancer will have bleeding. Now, the good news is only 9% of women who have bleeding have endometrial cancer. That is good news. So the optimist says there's a 90% chance if you have postmenopausal bleeding, you don't have cancer, but it shouldn't be ignored. Here's some statistics for you. 2015, 55,000 women were diagnosed with endometrial cancer, 10,000 of whom died. So the, the survival rate for early endometrial cancer, like early malignant melanoma in your area, yes. is very high, 90%. So it makes it one of the most survivable cancers if we pick it up early. And picking it up early means reporting postmenopausal bleeding to a healthcare provider. There's a couple of risk factors we should know about. Estrogen use, unopposed estrogen, certain medications like the drug tamoxifen, conditions like polycystic ovarian syndrome, obesity, smoking, and there's some genetic predispositions. So estrogen should not be given to postmenopausal women? No, that's not true at all. We talk about unopposed estrogen. So estrogen without taking concomitantly progesterone, which we say opposes the effects of that estrogen. So the two together does not increase the risk. That's exactly correct. Very good. So in the overwhelming majority of cases, postmenopausal bleeding is not associated with cancer, but in every case, it can't be ignored. What are the common causes of postmenopausal bleeding? Other than cancer. Yes. Usually it is a, a hormonal issue that there's some estrogen left. We make estrogen in the fatty tissues of the body. Also structural, benign structural things like little polyps in the endometrium that grow that can be removed that cause bleeding. Sometimes a condition called atrophic vaginitis where in the absence of estrogen, the vaginal tissues crack and the woman will see some bleeding. So the bleeding actually isn't coming from the uterus. It's coming from the vagina. Exactly. But like so many things we talk about in health, prevention is the best cure. Don't ignore those symptoms. Thank you for another practical health tip. This time for those half of our listeners or more who are women. And before we go to the break, I'll pose our medical trivia question of the day. As you may have noticed, I have a penchant for odd words. So I'm going to give you another one today. And that odd word is frenulum. F-R-E-N-U-L-U-M. It rhymes with the word pendulum. Now, you can find 
a frenulum in your brain or your digestive tract or your external genitalia. But where in the human body will you find the most frenuli or plural of frenulums? What do they do? Are they contagious? You're going to have to listen to the second and third segment of the show when we have a splendid interview. And then after that, I'll give you the answer. You're listening to Dr. Doctor. Stay tuned. We're back with our guest interview today with Dr. Robin Smith. She's going to talk to us about regenerative medicine and cell therapy. And this topic could uh, take a riff on the old movie, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, and this could be Dr. Smith Goes to the Vatican. Well, how do we get there? Well, Robin's a global thought leader in regenerative medicine and cell therapy. She has an MD from Yale, an MBA from Wharton School of Business. In 2007, she founded the Stem for Life Charitable Foundation to foster global awareness for regenerative medicine and cell therapy. 2010, this is the Vatican part, she forged a historic first-of-the-kind partnership with the Vatican to bring the mission of STEM for Life to a broader audience. And in fact, she's vice president and board member of uh, an area in the science and faith department of the Vatican's Council for Culture. And, and she says she's there uh, with conferences she's planned now four times since 2011 to, quote, catalyze interest and investment to reduce human suffering on a global scale, end quote. She's the co-author of Cells Are the New Cure and the book The Healing Cell, How the Greatest Revolution in Medical History is Changing Your Life. I met her at the April 2018 Unite to Cure conference at the Vatican. Dr. Smith, Robin, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Oh, thank you for having me. Oh, thanks for being with us. Could you explain to our audience what you mean by the terms regenerative medicine and cell therapy? Absolutely. So, you know, we're so used to someone getting sick and treating their symptoms. But regenerative medicine is a way that you actually can repair damaged tissue and restore function and almost take your organs and your cells and go back in time. And cell therapy, is that part of that, or is that yeah. different? Well, with cell therapy, we're really learning how to use the cells of our body. And in particular, we've made great progress using the cells of our immune system. So, so we have many different cells, not just stem cells, which are more often used with regenerative medicine to repair and restore the tissue. And we're able to take the immune system and have an effect on it. We can teach it and train it to uh, kill certain cancer cells when someone has cancer, to um, go even more aggressively at uh, certain bacterial or, or other infections. And, and we're able to, in an autoimmune disorder where um, your own body is not just killing bad cells, but you're actually killing the good tissue, there's ways that we can take that immune system and try and stop it and rebalance it to back to normal so that you're not destroying tissue like we see in type 1 diabetes. And I think this will appeal to all our listeners to have treatments like this. Well, your background is unique. You spent three years in surgical training, and then you left and did a managed care fellowship and then a master's of business administration. What led to this unusual change for a physician? Well, you know, I love patients, and, and I, in some ways I feel like I'm doing a lot more for patients as opposed to, you know, treating patients one at a time. You know, medicine is changing, and, and so often we're focused on helping people, but you have to understand the business principles. We need to make, you know, medicine affordable and, and improve access to care for all people, regardless of the different socioeconomic, you know, differences and backgrounds. So... I just was lucky and afforded the opportunity to work with Dr. David Nash at, at Thomas Jefferson University, and that was a time that they were doing a fellowship. It was the first of its kind when Aetna and U.S. Healthcare were merging, so uh. I was able to learn a lot about the business principles and then went on to get an MBA at Wharton and really understand. I think if you can be practical and have the business, you, you can take things from theory and actually make it actionable in a way that it can have the biggest impact. And very few physicians have the business part of the equation. I remember at the Vatican, uh, when Dr. Nash was talking, he said at one point you came up to him and said, whatever it is you do, 
that's what I want to do. What is it that you saw in him that led to this interest? You know, I think it was understanding how you can have an impact on population, population health. It's not just treating patients one at a time, but having a bigger impact on, um, you know, different parts of society or different groups of patients that may be suffering from an illness or an ailment and really using sort of information data um, to, to have a better understanding of how to treat people and to understand the cost structures of these incredible facilities that, that we have and how to make medicine sustainable. You know, of all the countries, we, you know, spend an awful lot of money on healthcare, not necessarily commensurate with the health of, of the people. So that's a problem, that GDP is, is, rising the the part that's spent on health care and, and we have to make sure that we are more efficient with the dollars that we spend. Well, Robin, uh, we know that you have a great interest in adult stem cells and that led to the, the founding of STEM for Life back in 2007, as Tom mentioned at the outset of the show. But maybe for our listeners, we should have a vocabulary moment and talk about adult stem cell versus the more controversial embryonic stem cell, because very often we just say, stem cell, or at least that's what one hears in the media. Maybe you could walk us through that just a little. Yeah, it it can be very confusing. So, you know, our body is made up of many different cell types, and we have stem cells everywhere in the body. In order to get an embryonic stem cell, that is when there are 16 cells. It's called a blastocyst. And at that time, in order to get or utilize an embryonic stem cell, you have to destroy the fetus. So that is where the controversy is. You're really making a choice whether that fetus lives or doesn't live. Adult stem cells are cells that can come from fat and bone marrow and teeth and they're all our organs, also from umbilical cord and placenta and fat. And there's many different sources of cells that you're not taking an embryonic stem cell but you are taking an early cell in the development that is dormant and hasn't differentiated um, to what the end uh, result that you need it to become, and those are stem cells that are considered adult stem cells. So it's the non-blastocyst stem cell. I think that's a great explanation. Uh, Thank you. So with that in mind, your, your STEM for Life Foundation, um, what work does the foundation do to impact research, et cetera, uh, and the treatment of patients? Well, when we started in the field, there was 400 clinical trials. And I think the the advances we've seen are in adult stem cell therapies. And now there's over 4,500 and there's over 30,000 cell therapy trials. Wow. So the idea wow. is what cell do you use? Where do you get them from? And when do you administer them? And where do you administer? And how do you administer them? And that's what all these clinical trials are looking at is for each specific disease state, how do you best treat a patient using cells um, as opposed to just treating the symptoms? How do you, um, you know, improve the health of those patients? And and it's, um, you know, it's exciting how much progress we've seen. And I think that we're going to see more in the future. And, of course, then that leads to how do you keep your cells healthy? And we're learning more and more about that and prevention and and ways to keep those very special, important cells as healthy as possible. Could you uh, at least give a, a, a verbal picture for our listeners of one example of where you've seen uh, the stem cells helping patients? Sure. So there's, I think, a couple. And I think we all have seen it. And that's what people don't realize is <laughs> if you know anybody who's had cancer and has had chemotherapy and it has destroyed their immune system, they've needed a bone marrow transplant. And that's literally taking stem cells and putting that into the patient, and it repopulates their immune system. So we've done this for 40 years, but people don't realize that the cells in a bone marrow transplant are stem cells. And they can come from bone marrow of a donor, another person who's a match genetically. It can come from the cord blood that is collected when people have uh, babies. And so there are two different sources that are typically used for bone marrow transplants, and that's been around for a long time. What we're realizing is those cells can be used to repair other tissue. There's clinical studies that or trials that are looking to use these cells in heart muscle after a heart attack. 
in heart muscle with congestive heart failure where the, the, you need muscle tissue. Yes. That heart mm-hmm. isn't pumping properly. Or, or the weekend warrior, you tear your cartilage, and instead of getting a joint replacement, you want to help regenerate um, the cartilage in those joints. We've seen an approval in graft-versus-host disease using stem cells um, for patient, you know, patients who are rejecting the transplants that have been put into them. And so there's there's more and more that we're seeing uses for, for these cells, and and hopefully that will continue. And I learned about some of these examples at the conference you put together, the Unite to Cure, in April. But this goes back to, I don't know, 2010 or earlier when you forged an unusual alliance with the Vatican. You yourself are not a member of the Catholic Church, yet there was something you saw about the, the Vatican that was important. Why did you go ahead and begin this alliance? Yeah, well, you know, I think you said it at the beginning of, of this conversation is there's so much confusion. People don't really understand. They hear embryonic. It, it makes negative connotations. And so I realized that in order to even explain to people how terrific the research is and the hope that it can bring to so many people suffering, people with lung disease, heart disease, spinal cord injury. There's so many areas where if you can repair and regenerate damaged tissue, you can really impact people's lives. And so I, I, I figured who, who would be most against this? Who would be the people whose voice would be important to teach and educate on what this was all about and that it can be consistent with their beliefs and not be a negative. And so um, I was introduced to the Vatican, and we spent some time looking at the science and where it was going, and the progress and the safety was really in the adult stem cell um, trials that we were seeing at that time and, and that have continued. And that is consistent with the Catholic Church. You're not choosing who lives and who dies, whether it's the fetus or the individual. You're um, using science in a way that is ethically consistent with the Catholic Church. Um, and so wouldn't it be great to work together to show people they don't have to make a choice between religion and science, that together these can work, um, you know, to heal and to help and to support, you know, the many people who, who need the, this type of research and people shouldn't be afraid. And, you know, it's important to remember that the Catholic Church has almost, I think, 25% of our health care systems, right? They have hospitals and, you know, areas all around the world. So we have to educate them and and be a part of of the process as, as innovation and technology, you know, is emerging so rapidly. Robin, we're going to take a break for our listeners and come back with some more fascinating information about regenerative medicine, cell therapy, and working with the Vatican. This is Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio. You're back with Dr. Doctor. I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, and we're joined tonight by Dr. Robin Smith. And uh, we were just talking about your amazing work uh, with the Vatican and what drove you there. Now, our listeners, I know, are just dying to know what it's like to work with the Vatican bureaucracy. And don't worry, you're not going to offend us with your answers. And uh, Tom and I are thinking of uh, G.K. Chesterton's comment where he said, to new convents about the Catholic Church, come on in. It's awful. Um, so I know our listeners would like to, to have your, your insight on that. Well, listen, I think there's bureaucracy everywhere, right? You can <laughs> yes. have that in hospitals, you know, <laughs> in everywhere, departments. And so, you know, I think it's understanding, um, you know, what what it is, how to work within um, you know, their, their structure. But, uh, you know, ultimately, it's about building bridges and being open to things that will help humanity. And I loved in the last conference, you know, there was a sentence from the Pope where he said, you know, science is a powerful means for better understanding the natural world and human health. It has opened up new possibilities and provided refined technologies that enable us not only to examine the deepest structure of living organisms, including man, but also to intervene in ways so profound and precise as to make it possible even to modify our DNA. Here we see the need for increased awareness of our ethical responsibility towards humanity and the environment in which we live. While the Church applauds every aspect 
in research and application directed toward the care of our suffering brother and sister, she's also mindful of the basic principles that not everything technically possible or doable is thereby ethically acceptable. And I think that is really the the crux. They applaud science, want to get behind it, but want people to think about the implications on society, the ethical implications, and really have that dialogue. And that's what we do in these conferences is try and have people see it from each other's perspectives and really look at the world, where we are today, and what impact we can have, both positive and negative, and take on the responsibility that that we all have as, as physicians and leaders in the community. Uh, that was my favorite part of his uh, his address to us, too, Robin. I, I thought he hit a home run with that entire uh, statement he gave to us, of which yours was a, a small part. It really exhibits a greater level of understanding by him and whoever helped him write that than I would have expected from the Vatican. So uh, you've done a phenomenal job uh, building a bridge there. Something I saw there that I thought was fascinating, when I went there, I didn't understand before arriving that there were going to be so many philanthropists there. In fact, it seems like I heard more than once this line, you know, once you've made your first billion dollars, you kind of want to give back. That is <laughs> out of my league. But it seemed like a sort of high-class matchmaking was going on. Is that intentional on your part? It is. You know, part of this is how we are going to fund all of this. And the one thing that money can't buy is, sort of your health and and longevity. And so the people want to, for themselves, right, many of those philanthropists want to, you know, be as young and vibrant and and capable um, as they can be and have the science to help them as they get older. But also it's to give back. And I think that we the idea here is how do we get things to patients more quickly? So there's philanthropists, there's regulatory, you know, officials, patients, different countries. But the it's we always make sure that we have philanthropists because, as we all know, there's not enough money, not enough budgets to invest in the research. And it's not just research to publish a paper, but the research that's translational, that gets to the patients. And sometimes it takes them getting together and saying, this is important. We want to eradicate, uh, you know, a certain illness or disease. We want to make a difference. And how do we do that? And how do we think out of the box and use the resources so that the value of the money can can make a difference and, and have an impact? So it is an interesting group. And it's, it's funny that you picked up on that. But it's, <laughs> um, because the people are so engaged, right? Yes. It's, it's less, it's different than what you'd expect. They're, they're less pretentious and just happy to be there, happy to be a part and wanting to work together and, and you know, really have an impact. It, it was unlike any other conference I've been to on so many levels. Now, I'd like to ask, what has been some of your favorite fruit of these four conferences that you've seen translate into changes for patients? The people are starting to really work together, right? So either people had lost hope and realized, oh, there is, there are clinical trials out there um, using cell therapy. I want to, you know, get involved, maybe find one from my myself, my loved one. So we've seen people who had sort of lost hope and, uh, you know, a perfect example was Meredith Vieira's husband, um, you know, Richard Cohn, who had MS and really he just stopped the medicines and after... Um, he was there in 13. He got into a clinical trial. So we've seen some of that. Um, Some of it is working together to help enrollment, um, help fund. But one of the ones we had was where a company called um, Caladrius, which was Neostem, and that I had started a long time ago, how they are partnering with Sanford Health and CIRM and getting the funding to get these kids enrolled in the type 1 diabetes, you know, T-cell trial to have it be quicker and, and have more impact to get the results. So we're seeing people banding together. There was a lot of discussion about uh, HPV vaccine and how can we eradicate HPV and, and decrease cervical cancer. We talked a little bit on kids, how, you know, 80% of the habits start when you're young with smoking and you know, obesity and things that will have an impact on getting cancer 
later on in life. So how do we work together and impact that culture? We had something on meditation. So it's really people are starting to work together. They're learning that the tools are out there. Um, and then how can they use them to help further things that they're interested? So we're seeing a lot of uh, collaboration, and that's really what this is about, is how do you collaborate to get to an outcome that we're all looking for, which are, you know, improving society and, and health care and, and things that will have an impact. One of the people that was at the meeting was Jack Nicholas, uh, and he gave a fascinating mm-hmm. talk on how his joints have been affected. I didn't realize he had such bad um, back trauma uh, before the age of 18, Mm -hmm. and that he used to be six feet tall, and now he's 5'8". And he shared about how he's gone to Germany for these cell trials. Can you tell our patients, they might like to hear the story of what he's done since he did it in a public venue. Yeah, so, you know, he had had some work done on his back, and then he was going back to work on his shoulder. And again, it's this regenerative ability so that you don't have to necessarily end up with a replacement, a joint replacement. So how do you get your tissue, which has worn and torn from all of, for him, his golf, and be able to regenerate the natural tissue, you know, to reduce pain? And so, you know, there's a lot of work that's being done outside of the U.S. as there are clinical trials here in the U.S. to get toward approval. And certainly with the 21st Century Cures Act and some of the other legislation, you know, we're seeing more and more done here. But but there are people who are going overseas to Germany, to the Bahamas, to Mexico, you know, other places. And, you know, it's it's scary in some ways because you know, people are in need, right? When you're in pain or you're suffering from oh, some sure. terrible palsy of a child and you, you want to make sure that you go somewhere that's safe. And it's it's really an issue of how do you monitor that? And, and there was a lot of discussion around registries and other ways to show that people are getting a standard of care and following them so that they're responsible for their outcomes. And he received, I think Dr. Alt, who does this in Germany mm-hmm. legally, um, uses yep. stem cells from the fat that helps to regrow or at least improve cartilage and tendon, does it not? Yes, so they're using mesenchymal cells from fat, and they put the fat with an enzyme, and it goes in the machine, and out comes the stem cells that they then inject back. They're doing that uh, in Germany. They're doing it at Okeanos in the Bahamas. And there, there are people who are really focusing on, on regenerative medicine in, in joints as well as other areas of the body. Will that be coming to the United States anytime soon, studies like that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of clinical trials. trials. Sanford is doing, uh, I think, a shoulder and a yes. knee trial. We see in many, you know, hospitals and academic institutions these trials that are looking at what the best source of stem cells are for these different areas, and then at what time do you administer them? So, you know, is it right after a heart attack, or is it four days after, or is sure. it, you know, a little bit after the, uh, that? And so, you know, we've seen incredible work from Joanne Kurtzberg in cerebral palsy and stroke, and uh, Marilyn Glassberg is working on lung disease, um, which a lot of people suffer from you know, interstitial pulmonary fibrosis as well as emphysema. So so we're seeing more and more the different use of cells. Some are from fat, some are from bone marrow, some are um, expanded in, in the lab, so they come from one source, and then you make many copies. And so there's a lot of research, and it's, it's a very exciting time right now to be in medicine. Why don't you tell um, our listeners about your book and what they might find most interesting in that and how to get it? So the first book was The Healing Cell, and that was focused on stem cell therapies. It was, you know, years ago, so so it was a little bit earlier. Um, but what's fascinating is Pope Benedict wrote the foreword and showed that the Church's support of adult stem cell therapy and even um, research that, that was done from stillborn fetuses. So that was, um, I think, very unique. Um, and then a recent book, The Cells and the New Cures, shows all of these areas where... where Instead of just treating the symptoms, you're able to take the cells and the different clinical trials that are 
um, out there, but it's doing it in a way that's through patient eyes. So we take patient stories and really show how disease can have an impact on their lives and and how they went through the clinical trials and what the results are and, and the many years later that many people were in remission. And so it's inspiring, it's hopeful. You get sort of very engaged in a person's life and get very excited about the doctors who are pioneers in the field and and really doing it the right way through clinical trials to show, you know, the impact of the technology that it can have on people's lives. So cells are the new cure. They can find that on Amazon, I assume. And yep, it's written absolutely. for a non-medical a audience, yep. correct? Yes, written for a non-medical audience. We have pictures and patient <laughs> stories, and, and yep, and, and it's really engaging. And I wrote that with the co- my co-author, Dr. Max Gomez. Uh, we're at the end of the interview. What final thoughts would you like to leave our listeners with about regenerative medicine and cell therapy? You know, I, I think it's mostly to have hope that it's an exciting time right now and technology is helping us understand more about individual patients, individual diseases, not all lung cancers are alike, and, and helping to determine what will work on that patient's illness to make a difference. And so if we can do things and help people get to treatment more quickly and, and have the treatment that they get more impactful, it will really make a difference. And certainly we're learning more every single day and, and cells are definitely going to be a very, very big part of the future. And there'll be times when we're hopefully building organs, right? You Instead of a, <laughs> a dialysis, you'll actually be able to go and get stem cells that are put on a scaffold and actually make a kidney and make a lung and and organs as they wear out with age. I love your vision for the future. Dr. Robin Smith, thank you so much for being with Dr. Doctor and our listeners today. Welcome back to our final segment of Dr. Doctor with the answer to my trivia question, which was, where will you find not only one frenulum in the body, that rhymes with pendulum, but the most amount of frenuli or frenulums in the body. And what do they do? Well, the place where you find the greatest number of frenuli is in the mouth. They're on the upper lip, the lower lip, under the tongue, and they are little areas that attach two parts of the body and restrict movement. So, for instance, under the tongue, you have this little web of tissue that prevents you from, you know, sticking it out your mouth and up in front of your nose. Uh, you've got other ones that hook your uh, gums to your lower lip and uh, actually attach the cheek to the gums. And the word frenum, from which frenulum comes, is a Latin word meaning a bridle. And frenulum means a, a little bridle. And where is this practical? If, oh, and Chris knows. <laughs> Chris, you, you did the universal sign for snipping. That's right. We Babies that are tongue-tied. You know, I yes. thought that was just an old expression that your grandmother used. But actually, it's when that frenulum is to taunt, and it doesn't properly allow the tongue to protrude, and therefore affects the way the baby latches to the breast. And I read that if this is not done, this little snipping is not done, when they're older, they might not be able to partake in two very important uh, adult occupations. One, licking an ice cream cone, and the other one listed on the Wikipedia article was kissing, although I don't know what the tongue has to do with kissing. Me neither. And with that, we're going to move on to our Lineker for the Laity segment. Father James McTavish, by the miracle that is the Internet, 12 time zones away, is being interviewed from the Philippines. He is a native of Scotland was a plastic surgeon and is now a priest and is the provincial for his religious order known as Verbum Dei, the Word of God. And Father McTavish wrote in the Lineker Quarterly an article called The Devastating Health Consequences of Sex Trafficking. Father, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Hello, everybody. Father McTavish, in the United States, we're pretty much blind to this topic of sex trafficking. But it's not only big, it's enormous. Can you lay out for our listeners what a big problem this is? Well, we can get a sense of how big the problem is with the number of victims involved. The Holy See estimated that in 2016, around 36 million people were trafficked. That's a lot of people. 
And according to other reports, in 2016, trafficking of persons is a $32 billion industry, which would make it third place behind arms and drug trafficking. So all these statistics help us to see the size of the problem. Most of the victims are women, and of the women victims of trafficking, 72% of them are trafficked for sexual exploitation. So this is really modern slavery. Yes, that's why the campaign is sometimes known as let's re-abolish slavery. Because we said our slavery is abolished in the past, but it's come back in a new historical form and in a worse way. And where in the world is this problem the worst? Well, I think really it's a global problem. There are some hot spots. Sometimes we might know, ah, this place is very... Uh, infamous for trafficking, having lots of prostitution. But remember that the customers are coming from all over the world. And is this particularly a big problem where you are in the Philippines? It's not easy sometimes to get a tab on the exact scale of the problem because it's really an issue that's not often talked about and it's difficult to really get a sense. But when you look around, for example, in many of the cities, there's so many areas of prostitution, so many bars and other things that drive this uh, epidemic is poverty, displacement of persons. And we have plenty of those problems here. But I would say not only is it an issue in Philippines, it's also an issue in the United States. Now, Obviously, this is a horrible moral problem, but why did you decide to write an article in a journal for medical practitioners? What does it have to do with physicians and nurses? Well, the first thing is that sex trafficking actually has a devastating impact on the victim's health, on their physical health, their psychological health, their mental health, even their spiritual health. Another detail that's very interesting, especially in the American context, is that many victims of trafficking will access healthcare facilities during their experience of being trafficked, especially visiting the emergency department. So victims of trafficking do come into contact with the healthcare system and they do come in contact with medical practitioners. So if medical practitioners can be aware and updated and sensitive, perhaps they could help in this devastating reality. With that in mind, Father, maybe you could tell us as, as physicians, as nurses, as other healthcare practitioners, um, how do we identify patients that may be right before us that are being victimized? Well, there's some general signs, sometimes they're called red flags, that can appear in the initial interview. For example, when someone else is speaking for the patient, or when the patient speaks, they use a language that's common in the commercial sex industry. Or, for example, the, there may be tattoos present on the person that say for sale or property of. These are some general markers. Mm. But when the physician or the nurse is doing their history taking and examination, by system, there are symptoms and signs that could be suggestive. For example, in a neurological examination and history taking. There could be a history of head trauma or frequent headaches. And in examining the neurological system, they may find, for example, skull bruises or healed lacerations. And you can go through every system, the neck, any history of strangulation. Basically going through all the systems of the body, there are some telltale signs which could indicate that this person is at risk or involved in the trafficking industry. What are some of the, the lingo, the, the comments of the commercial sex industry that they might be using? It may be that they are the place where they say they come from or the place where they are working. It might be well known that this is associated uh, with the sex industry. Also, when they talk, if there's a sexual history taken, the person might be talking about a large number of sexual partners. So this might give a clue that something is not right. And also, if the person is under 18, if they're in any way involved in the sex industry, most likely they're going to be a victim of trafficking. So what should a physician or nurse do if they see red flags? There's probably somebody there with this young woman. 
uh, trying to prevent her from being taken away, what can we do to help? Yeah, I think that's a very good question. I think one of the things we should do is it's not just to make up a spontaneous uh, reaction in that moment, but it's good to look at hospital protocols. I think these are things that need to be like reflected, discerned and written down and training offered. And I know that there are various manuals and I would say that the United States is uh, really one of the leaders in this sense. I know that different uh, medical associations, the Christian uh, medical and dental associations in the US, they actually have modules to help doctors and nurses be well prepared and trained and know what to do in that situation. I couldn't give more specific details, but I've read some protocols that exist and they're really helpful to give concrete advice of what to do and also what not to do in that moment. I know the CMA is starting work in this, and I, I think I, I will mention your idea. We need protocols that are practical. Now, you say that, that this is also a problem for the church to confront. How can we as Catholics confront and help this problem? There are different ways. One is we can be attentive to the various announcements of Pope Francis how we can be concerned about this reality, especially not to be indifferent. One of the interesting things is the more you are aware of a reality, the more your eyes begin to open. And they would say that, for, the, for example, the reality of prostitution is hidden in plain sight. Hidden in plain sight. I find that a very succinct way of describing yes. the problem. Other, other things we can do, um, I think that we have to remember that if there was no demand, there would be no supply. <laughs> this is a very important principle. So all of us can be concerned about the demand side. I think personally for all of us as Catholics, living well the pure love in our hearts, in our life as a single person, in our religious life, in, a, in our life as a married person, trying to live our love well in a healthy way, we're already injecting like a more pure love into the body of Christ. <laughs> so this really can be a concrete way we can help. You know, Father, I'd be interested to know if you feel like the pox that is pornography uh, is connected uh, to this this devastating problem. Yes, definitely. Because there's two very clear links we can make. One is that often women who are trafficked end up into being forced into pornography, especially internet pornography, or for movies and films. That's one link. The second is a statement that was given to me by uh, NGO workers who work in the field of uh, human trafficking, helping the victims. I asked them, uh, in the context in the Philippines, is the reality of sex trafficking prostitution increasing? And they said, yes. And I said, why do you think this is? And they said to me, pornography is the theory and prostitution is the practice. Wow. And I can understand that. Yes, it's a very powerful and very provocative uh, statement. I can understand because the dynamism of sin in us, in when we say that I confess, it's in my thoughts, words, and deeds. Yes. So looking at pornography, the poison enters the mind. And when we take poison, it has consequences on the body. So even in the way we think, the way we treat the body of the other, the way we understand the whole human sexuality is very distorted by the viewing of pornography and in the living it out often the person will uh, go or end up going to a prostituted woman to live out what they have seen so there's a very intrinsic connection I feel between pornography and prostitution sex trafficking could you give us one example of an encounter you have had with a woman who has been in sex trafficking Yes, I can share, for example, when I went out with some religious sisters to do some, we were actually inviting these prostituted women to a spiritual activity during Lent, because we believe that helping them to pray and to have a moment to look at their life, they might receive the grace to have the strength to exit it. And we were giving out the invites with a little biblical line on it. And on the invite, the line we chose was from the prophet Isaiah. The mountains may crumble and the hills may fall, but my love for you will never end. Mm. And when one of these women read it, she started to cry. Mm. And I was very touched by her sensitivity, but I didn't understand why she was crying. So I asked her and then she said to me, 
in all my life I have never experienced a love like that uh, and I was amazed at that sensitivity uh, it contrasted me because when I read that passage or if many of our listeners read that verse I don't know if it would move us to tears and it helped me to remember what Jesus said that the prostitutes will enter the kingdom before you <laughs> yes beautiful amen, amen father Father, what else would you like our listeners to know about sex trafficking? Well, I think that one of the reasons why it this reality is so pervasive and enduring is sometimes the indifference that surrounds it. Sometimes in front of our faith, Pope Francis would say, we kind of want a, a Christ that doesn't have flesh on him. It's like a kind of spirituality, but it's not always incarnated. So we shouldn't be afraid to touch the wounds of Christ. And one of the wounds is this form of modern slavery today. So I think the fact that uh, we can be interested, we, be, we can be concerned, these are our brothers and sisters in Christ. So this can provoke us. And I would also say that it's a pity that only religious sisters are concerned for this reality. It cannot be. How about more priests? How about the lay people? We are all missionary disciples from our very baptism. Pope Francis is constantly reminding of this. So I would say the church has millions of lay people, and they shouldn't just be laying around. So I think we can do more. Father McTavish from the Philippines, thank you so much. This is so timely and so important. And to all our listeners, thank you for listening to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, brought to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio. For more information about the CMA, find us on our website, cathmed.org. That's C-A-T-H-M-E-D dot O-R-G. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud. We'll be signing off. Until next time, thanks again for joining us. Remember, your medical decisions may have profound consequences. Choose wisely. Choose Catholic.